Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Ontario Education Minister unveils the new sex ed curriculum. Is it that much different than the old one? The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on for stronger government accountability to prevent a similar situation from happening as in the SNC-Lavalin Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal. And Canada is seeing both pro-democracy and pro-China demonstrations in the wake of what is happening in Hong Kong. And a former Liberal cabinet minister seems to be defending China. What is Canada's position? And is there such thing as a serial dine and dasher? Apparently so. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, the Ontario government has released its new health and physical education curriculum, which is, uh, includes, of course, the new sex ed course, replacing the much-criticized teaching plan brought in after the progressive conservatives took power last year. To talk more about all of this, Stephen Lecce is with us, Ontario Education Minister, and on the line now. Stephen, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me try again. Stephen, are you there? I am. Okay, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And if we were to compare the, uh, the curriculum that's just been released to the curriculum of the Wynn government that they released that uh, you know was sort of the source of all of this, how would you compare the two? What's been added? What's been taken away? What's the difference when you hold both of these up to the light? Absolutely. Well, I would argue in substance and in process, these are materially different. We have improved uh, the curriculum in dramatic ways, and I'll enumerate them step by step in a second. I just want to say what underpinned this review was in the in the process side of it, under the former Liberal government, with great respect to Premier Wynne, uh, parents came to a conclusion, I think a very fair conclusion, that they were not given a say and their voices were not heard. We launched the largest consultation in the province's history, a bona fide, credible roadmap for folks to give their say. That includes educators, it includes the kids themselves. And they told us that they wanted to see more of elements when it comes to mental health, when it comes to cannabis, when it comes to online safety, when it comes to human trafficking, consent, and we've done all that. Let me just enumerate a couple areas in no particular order. On body image and body shaming, there's a lot of that happening, cyberbullying uh, that that, that is associated with. We've introduced mandatory learnings in grade two and three, and actually added it in grade one as well. So we now go well beyond the 2015 version that only had it in grade four and seven. In, for example, uh, bullying. We've added mandatory learnings in grade three and eight. In cannabis, the last time this, this was built, cannabis wasn't legalized. The federal liberals mm. have legalized cannabis. Ostensibly, it's normalizing its use for young people. And so we've added mandatory learning in grade five. We moved it a year younger than the liberal version, and we've added mandatory learnings in grade seven and eight, and we've increased the substance abuse element of the curriculum dramatically, including opioids, because that wasn't really fundamentally mentioned in the former version. And as you know, we have great levels of addiction, and we want to make sure that we're conditioning young people to understand the cognitive, physical, mental uh, uh, impacts, adverse impacts of the consumption of these drugs. On concussions, it was only optional in the old version. We've now mandated it from kindergarten to grade eight because we know physical health is so important. And we know that kids play, go out there and play in the playground, which we want to see more of, given the youth obesity rates. They've got to stay safe. So we're giving them the tools to do that and their parents. On consent, you know, as we've introduced mandatory learning in grade one, two, three, four, five, six, because it only was in grade seven and eight. And just for context, what, what consent means in grade one or two, it's about creating boundaries of space, letting young people know that if, God forbid, a peer or an adult touches them inappropriate that they have autonomy over their body and that they have the self-confidence to talk to someone credible about that 
experience that they could stay safe. We introduced a dramatic reform to online safety, a huge emphasis on human trafficking. It used to only be in grade four, five, seven. We've added mandatory learnings on online safety from kindergarten to grade three and in grade six and eight. Why? Because Scott, we recognize the kids, and I got you know I don't have you know I've got two nieces, uh, beautiful nieces in my life, and they're on their tablets like literally they're better at this than I am, and I'm not that old, so they're on their tablets all the time, and they're only five and four years old, and so we know that they're online, they're on YouTube. And we want to make sure that these kids are safe and they've got the tools to stay safe from privacy to trafficking, uh, just to online victimization of adults who prey on our young kids. On, uh, and then there's you know, other areas that I think are important, like tolerance and respect, talks about homophobia, other forms of, uh, of, of, of phobias against uh, the LGBTQ community. We look, at the end of the day, Scott, I want every child in this province to know that irrespective of your faith, of your heritage, of your gender, of your orientation, place of birth, social economic status. It just doesn't matter. I want them to know that they're respected and they should see themselves in education in this province. That's the vision that I'm trying to build, that this premier is trying to build, that our fort, that my predecessor was trying to build. And I think we're doing that manifestly through a new program that is dramatically better. It is more expansive. It is a longer document, another 60 pages of content. And it includes new elements that just weren't even conceived in 2015. When this discussion started, Stephen, it wasn't about adding things that that weren't uh, top of mind a couple of years ago. It what it was about what needed to be taken out. Uh, and again, uh, kudos for what's been done here. But what has been removed? You know what 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 has constituted this to happen in the first place? What what's right. been what's been well, neutralized? Look, I think the impetus for the change, why we campaign on this in the first place, is because parents just do not believe. And I think a lot of educators, actually, in the, both the public and Catholic systems, would say to you privately and some even publicly, they felt that there just wasn't a legitimate opportunity to have a say in the process. And when you're, when you're, when you're building a program like on sexual health, uh, in, in the context of the health and physical education curriculum, the sexual element of it, you know, that those are sensitive matters, subconscious matters. People should have a say. You can't just impose one's values. You've got to, I think, give license and socialize these ideas, give them an opportunity to be heard. We've done that. The biggest consultation ever. So we've added elements. We have made some elements more age-appropriate based on the consultation, based on the perspective or reality of parents. But also in areas like sexual orientation where, you know, uh, parents said to us, look, we want our kids to understand that those concepts, if they feel insecure, if they identify on the, if they're LGBTQ, I want them to know that. I want them to be confident. And more importantly, I want them not to be prejudicial against other kids who are experiencing that. That's why under our government, we moved the mandatory learning. It was in grade six to grade five, just to make sure that there's that safe space for kids in the classroom who are from the LGBT community. So we've done a lot, I think, to find that balance. But I think what manifestly is different from their version and ours is we've listened. We've given parents a say. And I think at the end of the day, safety is what underpins this program. It's why we did this, because I thought... Mm -hmm. And I think that my predecessor thought, the premier, the entire caucus, we all believed, Donna Skelly, Alden Hamilton, we all knew we can do better. And we've got to do better in the service of our children. They're vulnerable. Uh, they're being preyed upon. And we think safety, strengthening that is going to help uh, keep them safe inside the classroom and outside. What about gender identity? And many have said a lot of the references to gender identity have been removed in sexual uh, sexual orientation. Um, uh, it's now a mandatory topic in grade eight, previously mandatory in grade six. Uh, can you address that at all and, and why those yeah. have been removed? 
Well, I mean, to be clear on sexual orientation, just so we're clear, as, as I was just mentioning, Scott, we've actually added mandatory learnings in grade five and grade seven. So we've moved it from grade six to grade five. We've added grade five. So I just want to debunk a narrative that that's been removed. In fact, it's been enhanced. It's been strengthened. Um, we've added two new years of content in this respect uh, because we uh, obviously value that there are children in the classroom from the LGBTQ community. We don't want them to be bullied. We don't want them to feel different. I guess, Stephen, we're we're all going back to, you know, this discussion way back when with the Wynn government and what needed to be done and perhaps the pendulum had swung too far. Uh, The Ford government uh, promised, you know, to... Uh, uh, cons- uh, consultation with, with more students, teachers, and parents, although liberals said that's exactly what they did. But really, this whole brouhaha started about what was in there, not what was yep. going to be added to it. So, you know, uh, in order to correct some of the confusion, what was taken out? What was removed? Yep. What, what, what are, you know, not what was improved, because that means you've certainly listed all of that. But what are some of those key points that people were unhappy about, including references to gender identity and such that have been taken out. What has been altered and why? Understood. So, uh, and and I'm going to get to this question, just give me five seconds to get there. We take a scaffolding approach to laying the foundation for young people to understand concepts of inclusion. In grade three, for example, for for visible and non-visible, invisible differences, we introduced that concept then because we don't want people to see the difference based on their orientation or their gender. In grade five, we're now introducing sexual orientation. In grade five, we're adding mandatory learnings in grade five and seven in a section called Tolerance and Respect that deals with homophobia. So we are doing that, but in the context of, uh, of the transgendered uh, principle you've mentioned, to make it more you know, age-appropriate, given that we're talking about a complex issue that does manifest. There's kids who go, go through this experience. We want them to feel safe. But we're doing it at a time when we think that they're going to have the maturity uh, and the sobriety of mind to think about these concepts, which you know even adults think at times could be a bit uh, could be a bit challenging. And so we're doing it in grade eight. We're building upon that from grade three to grade five in the orientation, the transphobia, other the homophobia elements, uh, and we're doing all these things to build that capacity to create that inclusive lens we want kids to have once we get to grade. Eight. Look, many problems is, or some problems do not teach this element. We do. We've done it at an age that is age-appropriate because the parents have given us guidance on it, just like they gave guidance on the orient- sexual orientation, moving that down a bit. They wanted their kids to understand that so that their kids are, you know, inclusive in an in increasingly interconnected uh, digital world. They want their kids to know that, you know, love is love and that however it manifests, that individuals deserve respect and have human dignity. Um, will these changes keep critics happy on both sides? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, what motivated these changes? Uh, the the pre the last premier says uh, fear of you know homophobia, uh, simply homophobia. Um, you're saying parents wanted more of an input, more of a say in, in what's going on. Are 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 the are the critics and and the the people who voted for your party? Uh, because there was changes promised here. Are they going to be happy about this? Can you keep them both, both sides happy here? I think all parents in the province of Ontario overwhelmingly are going to embrace this curriculum reform. It is transforming it. It is modernizing it. It is putting safety in the driver's seat. I think at the end of the day, my audience uh, is the broader public. It's moms and dads and communities in Hamilton and right across the GTHA. Ooh, I want them to have the confidence that we built a plan that respects their child no matter how uh, you know, difference uh, uh, they may be or 
their learning capacities or their, their exceptionalities or differences. I don't, you know, I don't want that to be a consideration no longer in the system and in society. So I think every parent should feel that they've got a, a roadmap that reflects the broader values of this nation. And for those that do not uh, feel on certain issues on sexual health that may be congruent with their own value system, there's an opt-out mechanism that existed under the former liberals, although it was disjointed and not fairly cogent. We've now created a mechanism that is streamlined that, that gives them that option because we believe parents' values are important and we trust parents to make the best decisions for their kids. Uh, at the end of the day, why is this sex ed curriculum better than the previous governments? And and to just generalize, is it uh, obviously more things have been added to it, like cannabis and mental health, who you know, which perhaps are, are becoming more and more of an issue with every passing day. Um, uh, but but even more so, um, is it, is it safe to say that things are just slowed down and started later or would that be a rash generalization? I I think fundamentally, no, I I think fundamentally what has changed is in process, we've listened, which the former government did not by any stretch of the imagination. And in substance, we've enhanced it and modernized it because there's new realities facing and inflicting harm on our kids from of peer-to-peer cyberbullying to online victimization to trafficking increasingly with two-thirds of trafficking happening in Ontario in this country, which is a devastating stat, overwhelmingly in the 400 series highways. We've made safety the central priority. And I think there's a lot more that the former government could have done. We've mitigated those gaps. We've strengthened it. We've added capacity. We've made it age-appropriate, and we've allowed parents to have the same. And that is important because I think in the absence of having the social license of parents, who felt that they didn't have a say, you lose confidence of the public. And I think as public legislators, we need to do a better job of listening to people we serve. And we gave people, 70,000 people, the largest consultation literally in the ministry's history since Confederation, since the ministries existed. We've never had something so expansive and so robust. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud to defend it every step of the way. I think them, I think you know people in, 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 in should be seeking democratic expression and opinion from the people of Ontario. We've done it, and we built a plan that is dramatically better, it's inclusive, and it's safe. Stephen, one last question. While we have the Ontario Education Minister with us, uh, school around the corner, uh, we've certainly hearing lots of ads uh, uh, on radio and TV and in media and such in regard to uh, the teachers' unions and such. Uh, what can you tell parents in regard to starting school uh, this school year, and, and will there be any sort of uh, unrest between the teachers and government? Look, I've heard some you know, union members talking about preparing for battle, and I just want families to know that the Premier and I and the entire government uh, were preparing for the first day of school. I want kids in Ontario to have a positive experience in an inclusive classroom, in a safe classroom. We're expending uh, over $550 million to build new schools and expand current ones. We're putting, we're investing the most in the history of this province in special education, French language education. We're putting more money. We've doubled the mental health portfolio. We're putting a lot of money in where it counts. And we're transforming education so that we have a labor market lens so that when these kids go through the journey of learning, they've got a good paying job at the end of that experience. So what I'd say broadly on negotiations that we continue to do them in good faith, they are ongoing. Um, you know, I really do believe a deal can be landed. And I'm going to continue to work very, very hard to get that deal because parents deserve predictability. I wanted that deal done 
I still believe it can be achieved. I've called on all parties, including my own negotiators, to expedite negotiations because I think for educators themselves, but most importantly, the kids we serve and their parents, they deserve predictability. And that's what the message I've communicated all along is the one I'm going to continue to get to deliver until we get a deal. Stephen Lecce has been with us, Ontario Education Minister, talking about uh, the new sex ed curriculum and the first day back. Stephen, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Awesome. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. In light of the SNC-Lavalin scandal, the whole Jody Wilson-Raybould thing, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling for stronger government accountability uh, to prevent a similar situation from happening again. Uh, Here is what the uh, leader of the opposition, uh, leader of the federal conservative party, Andrew Scheer, had to say on all of this. The ethics committee's decision today will come down to six liberal MPs. Frank Bayless, Mona Fortier, Michelle Picard, Raj Sani, Anita Vandenbeld, and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. These MPs have the power to decide if an investigation will proceed. All right, he talking about uh, ethics committee uh, looking into this even farther and getting the actual uh, federal ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, to testify at this. Uh, Let's bring in Aaron Woodrick, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He is with us now. Aaron, as always, thanks for the time. Much, uh, Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. What needs to be done in order? Well, well, you know what? Let's start here. Has this been a problem in the past? Why is has this been a problem this year? Yeah, it hasn't been a problem in the past, Scott, but I think it's important that we look at the potential for this to happen again. You know, right now, of course, there's an election in two months. Uh, Political partisans are trying to make hay of this. If you're in the opposition, you want to use it to hurt Justin Trudeau. If you're liberal, you want to downplay it because you want to get reelected. But I'm trying to look long term here. I think the important thing is, how do we put rules in place to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again? And that's why I've made a couple of proposals about things we could do, we could change substantively, no matter who wins the election, to prevent this kind of uh, political interference in a, in a prosecution from ever happening again. So, Aaron, because this has happened now, even though it hasn't happened in the past, you feel that this could happen again? Well, absolutely. And there's, and there's two main things, uh, and the reforms I touch on sort of explain why. One of the reasons that we're in this situation, Scott, is that the role of the Attorney General and the Minister of Justice under our system has always been the same person. So the same person is doing two jobs. Uh, they're similar, they're related jobs, but they are different jobs. The Minister of Justice is a cabinet minister like most other ministers. They, they decide which laws are to be passed. They're essentially in a policy-making role. The Attorney General is a different role. They have to be independent, almost like a judge. Uh, they defend the rule of law and the Constitution. So the problem arises when the same person is doing both of those roles, and it's okay for other ministers to, you know, sort of pressure and question and give advice to the Minister of Justice, but they can't do that to the Attorney General. Uh, and the whole reason this problem has arisen is they're the, the same person is doing both those jobs. So we're saying separate those roles, have two different people do the two different jobs, and you won't run into the situation. Uh, and I'm quoting from your article here, uh, Aaron, a review authored by the former Liberal Attorney General and Justice Minister Ann McClellan and released on the same day in mid-August as the Ethics Report, concludes that the dual role status quo is fine and that no changes are needed to, quote, promote public confidence. The review argues that keeping the roles together allows for synergies and perspectives. Your thoughts? Yeah, look, with all due respect to Mr. McClellan, I think she's coming from a place where she has done that role, and she saw it as a benefit to her that she was able to wear those two hats. That may be true, but what I think is more important is that the public have confidence 
that these ro- the lines are not being blurred. Uh, you know, a lot of people have asked me, well, how does this affect me? Why should I care about something like, uh, uh, you know, political interference in prosecutions? What does that mean? I guess the, the, the best analogy to use for people is it's similar to having a politician call up a judge sitting and watching a case. It's not the judge in this case, it's the prosecutor, but it's not appropriate for politicians to be interfering in that process, whether to get prosecutors to lay off someone or asking them to prosecute someone. That should be an independent decision, and we need to keep politicians far away from it. Are there not already laws in place to monitor all of this? As we said, I mean, this really hasn't come up before. Uh, now, all of a sudden, it seems to be a gray area. Well, yeah, th- there was a rule. It's called the Shawcross Doctrine, which essentially lays out what you can and cannot do with an attorney general. The problem, though, Scott, as, as the ethics commissioner's report has made clear, is everyone from the prime minister on down and, and 99% of the public don't understand what this, this doctrine means. Understandably, it's not something that we run into every day. So we think the simplest way to avoid the confusion about who you're talking to is rather than have one person wear two hats, just split up the roles and you'll always know whether you're talking to the Minister of Justice or the Attorney General. Rather than, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, Aaron, rather than split the two roles, why not just come up with a strong set of rules and, and regulations, guidelines in which to follow? Well, you know what? I think the I think Anne McClellan's report, there is some good stuff in there, and some of her other recommendations are things that I think would also be good. So, for example, she proposes that advice be in written form, um, because a lot of the time we get into this he said, she mm. said thing, Scott, and the best way to make sure we know exactly what was said and what was conveyed is to have it written. So I think that's certainly something else we could do. Uh, how do you think Jody Wilson-Raybould feels about this? The idea well, of splitting I, the roles. I think yeah, I, I don't. I have not heard her thoughts on it. Uh, you know, I think she she would certainly be, be testament to the fact that uh, you know I, I don't think a lot of people recognize that the attorney general is not a political role like others. That's why I think a lot of uh, people in the Trudeau government may have earnestly thought, well, what's the big deal? I was bringing information to a minister, uh, but you know, her being a lawyer, her understanding the role, she clearly felt uncomfortable, and that's of course the whole reason that uh, that all of this has come to light. Uh, do you think an ethics committee uh, moving this discussion forward is the answer? Uh, I certainly think that we should not stop examining what has happened. You know, what I've written here is focusing on going forward, but I do think there are still questions that have not been answered. Um, I recognize that you can't really separate that from the, the, the politics of it, uh, but, you know, regardless of who it benefits politically, I still think it's important that, uh, that we get more answers than we've had to this point. All right, Aaron, uh, obviously one of your suggestions separating the role uh, uh, of AG. The second was omnibus bills. We all remember, well, we do now, although didn't really at the time, that this whole provision for a deferred prosecution agreement was slipped into a, uh, a budget bill, I guess, as part of an omnibus uh, omnibus bill, which, uh, you know, eventually uh, allowed the the loophole for SNC Lavalin to to try to go through here. Uh, your second point was to eliminate these sorts of things. Expand on that. Yeah, that, that's a more general point about transparency with laws, uh, Scott. Like the Liberals had promised, in fact, in their platform to not use omnibus bills, precisely because they had argued the Stephen Harper government had done it and that it was undemocratic, and they were right. So we were disappointed to see that they started doing exactly the same thing. Uh, they should put a stop to it. And I think the more troubling thing that we saw in this particular case was that SNC-Lavalin explicitly threw just tack it on the budget bill and no one will notice. 
I, I don't think that would strike a lot of people as, as a transparent way uh, of doing business. Uh, last question, Aaron. Do you th- we, we remember way back when this story was, we were talking about it, man, every day for weeks it appeared. Uh, I couldn't believe how this resonated with the Canadian population. I thought it was too deep into the weeds. Are you surprised that the conclusion from the ethics commissioner hasn't generated as much fodder? No, look, I think, uh, I think a lot of that has already been baked in. Uh, I think it's fair to say not a lot of people have changed their minds uh, based on the commissioner's report. There were some details that were new, but the conclusions were not. Uh, and I think, you know, in a way, it is a good thing that we have an election in two months because Canadian, the Canadian public will get to pass judgment on it. Aaron Woodrick has been with us, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. In the wake of the SNC-Lavalin scandal, accountability reforms are needed, says Aaron Woodrick, the Federal Director. Thank you so much, Aaron. Much appreciated, as always. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking about uh, not only the demonstrations in Hong Kong, uh, but even one professor I I was talking to from UBC earlier on uh, in the week talking about concern over September when uh, uh, pro-Chinese students uh, are coming into Canadian universities and are clashing with pro-Hong Kong, pro-democracy Chinese Canadians uh, on campus and, and what has escalated now in, in various Canadian cities, we're, we're starting to see, uh, the same sort of thing, uh, where, uh, people, Canadian Chinese who are pro-democracy trying to stand up for, uh, their, uh, countrymen in, in Hong Kong, uh, now facing, uh, counter-protests here from Chinese uh, nationals that are going to school here or are living here and taking advantage of democracy. It's created a very odd situation. And now we have a scenario where a former Liberal cabinet minister, Michael Chan, uh, seems to be defending China in light of the violence that has erupted in Hong Kong. Uh, interesting article in the uh, National Post. Former Ontario Liberal Cam- cabinet minister headlines pro-Beijing rally near Toronto. The event Michael Chan headline was part of what appears to be a worldwide effort to rally the Chinese against Hong Kong demonstrators. And to talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Elliot, as always, thank you uh, so much for the time. Much appreciated. This story just keeps unfolding. Boy, does it ever. And 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 this part seems to be very concerning because it, it concerns uh, life here in Canada as well as us watching uh, uh, 300,000 plus Canadians that, that live in Hong Kong. Uh, how concerned are you that uh, these demonstrations have have uh, seemed to break out in Canadian cities? Um, again, not so much just defending uh, democracy and, and what is going on in Hong Kong, but we also seem to see uh, uh, Chinese nationalists here that are either going to school or, or, or working here or whatever that are sort of silently uh, providing an anti-protest movement. What are your thoughts on all of this? Well, a few things. First of all, we're Canada. Free speech is valued. Yep. And if people are in Canada and want to express themselves, they are certainly legitimately um, open to do so. That's part of why you come to a place like Canada. That's whether you're a student or a tourist or whoever else you happen to be referring to. There has been concern that... Uh, well, let me have a second point. I'm concerned a bit that overseas activities ends up dividing Canadians, in this case, Canadians of Chinese descent. How do we prevent that? Oh, well, you can't. Uh, remember Ireland? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, the fact that we have 
the world represented in Canada means that the world's conflicts, one way or another, are likely to wash back into Canada, and that's just part of the Canadian experience. It is unfortunate if local communities find themselves families and and uh, basically cousins and yeah. just the broader communities from wherever you happen to be from find themselves divided. That's never a good thing and healthy, but it's, uh, again, a natural part of life and certainly a definite part of Canadian history in the past. The third element, however, is that there have been reports in the past, and there are reports now, that China, a foreign government, is influencing what happens inside Canada, is creating some of this dissension, is funding it, and uh, uh, is getting support from people inside Canada. And that's, that's a separate issue. It's not the same thing as freedom of speech and it's unfortunate about communities being divided, but that's normal. What isn't, um, what isn't something to, to just say, oh, well, that's just life, is if uh, these protests are, in fact, being manipulated. Uh, how ironic is it that Chinese nationals are enjoying democracy and all it provides, including in some situations a great education, while selling communism, really? Well, turn that on the head. It said... It's very interesting to me that since Deng Xiaoping basically opened up China, that students in, in their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds have been coming to Canada and elsewhere, Austria, Australia in particular, the U.S., Britain. They live and imbibe the values of the countries within which they are studying, and they do take those back home. What happens after it gets back home is another issue, but it's there. These are seeds, in a sense, that are being planted uh, whether it turns out to uh, to grow or another is another issue, but I don't think it's unhealthy at all to have students from around the world come here and then go back, whatever their home situations may be. I guess that's the concern. I mean, obviously China is letting their students come here and study. Are they not fearful that they will come back and bring democracy with him with them, as opposed to the opposite? Are they here to spread? Uh, you know, what China is all about and the Communist Party of China is all about rather than Canadian democracy? Let's assume, as a, as a professor, that our students in front of us are there to learn and to study. Mm -hmm. uh, our governments from abroad sending students to um, gather intelligence? Are they sending them as, uh, as uh, spreading the home country's views inside Canada? Mm -hmm. I don't See that as a particular long-term successful strategy. The more focused has been on whether the um, various Confucius Institutes and are, are direct agents of the communist state spreading the communist perspective and using influence on campuses to do so. Is this like the old, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had advocates on for Hong Kong over the past uh, couple of weeks discussing this, and, um, and they are very adamant about this is China slowly putting its hands around Hong Kong and slowly economically weaving its way into uh, uh, economies of the world. And, and that person must have said the Communist Party of China at least a dozen times during mm -hmm. our discussion. Mm -hmm. Are we forgetting that? Are, is this like the old days where it will be a discussion about democracy versus communism? 
the a lot of people aren't willing to have that discussion yes. unless you're Chinese. Yes. Um, yeah. There's a distinction to be made between whether it's state policy overseas or whether individuals choose to express their own views, which are deeply held and which happen to be the same as the government that's paying for their their, their uh, education abroad. I, I think the deliberate use of students or others as agents of the state and to propagate the state interest is quite separate from whether individuals wish to do so uh, and, and is it a state policy. Uh, I think China would have to be very cautious about saying we're sending everybody abroad in order to subvert the countries we're sending them to because the chances are equally good or better that the reverse is happening. You send people abroad and they live the way we live and they go home and find they can't. Uh, it's, that would be a threat if that is a state policy. But I think we should probably take a look at what's happening in, in Hong Kong because since we last talked about a week ago, I think two important things have happened. One is uh, Canada has increasingly become singled out as a target within China, within state agencies. This is as opposed to um, statements made and so forth uh, by lawyers here in Canada. Uh, apparently, our foreign minister is now becoming a, um, a very specific face and, and target for uh, important institutions, uh, communications institutions inside China. So the dispute between China and Canada in particular over Meng Wanzhou is not diminishing, it's expanding and becoming even more specific, uh, saying that Canada should, uh, should behave uh, in time. It should be more prudent in time. Well, we aren't sure what that means, but quite clearly what we are watching for is how is Canada and China working their situation out, and we're not. In fact, that seems to be escalating. And the second thing that I think is interesting worth noting is that, and we're closely related to us, Scott, is, is uh, hostage diplomacy. Hostage diplomacy seems to also be expanding. We, we as you know, have the two Michaels and some other uh, Canadians who are uh, receiving treatment in China that seems to be politically motivated uh, because of our bilateral situation over Meng Wanzhou. Now that's expanded to the U.K., the U.K. has also said publicly, you know, you have to behave yourself, China, in Hong Kong. I paraphrase, but that was clearly the message. And now apparently in retaliation, we don't know this for certain, a local hire, a member of the United Kingdom consulate in Hong Kong, that is, this is a U.K. government institution, diplomatic institution in, in Hong Kong, uh, went into, crossed the border into China, into Shenzhen, and now is under detention. So uh, the, the central government does not seem to be backing away from hostage diplomacy in conducting its relations hmm. with the world. Uh, your thoughts on uh, the actions of uh, Michael Chan, Ontario's Liberal Trade Minister, former 
uh, trade minister. Uh, the article in the Post, yeah. as protesters continue to surge through the streets of Hong Kong to press for greater freedoms, a former Canadian cabinet member offered a much different viewpoint recently just outside Toronto. Michael Chan, Ontario's Liberal trade minister until last year, was a keynote speaker as, as scores of Chinese Canadians rallied in support of Beijing and the largely non-democratic Hong Kong administration. Unity is better than violence. Chan proclaimed, we support Hong Kong's police strictly uh, handling unrest. Hong Kong's government carefully defending the rule of law. China's government carefully observing Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, support the police. Is, is, is that, what, what side of the fence does that lean on? Where, 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 well, are, they, where are they swaying here? Well, that's, pro, that's a pro-Beijing uh, statement. Quite clearly saying. What does it say when Canadian politicians are supporting uh, the Chinese government this way? Well, again, there's two possibilities. One is he's a Canadian and he's free to express his opinion, and if that's what he thinks, then he's entitled to it. And people who don't like it are entitled to an opposing view. That's that's democratic politics and freedom of expression. Separately from that, some time ago, and I was trying to track that down before chatting with you, and I haven't, there was a report from one of our security services, our own, saying there was concern that China was beginning to influence certain Canadian politicians. I don't know if he's one of those they had in mind or not. But if this is a result of Chinese intentions and actions and and, uh, success in influencing Canadian politicians, then that's a separate issue altogether. But Again, this is a Canadian who has held a position of authority in Canada who believes, apparently, either spontaneously or not. Uh, if it's spontaneous, that's his view. He can pursue it. And if it's something else, it's something that might need to be further uh, investigated. Where is this going, Elliot? I mean, how do we balance this? How do we balance the opportunity that exists and and we probably perhaps naively ignored all the... Uh, you know, the characteristics of a communist party in order to get to where we are. But now we've got a situation where this country is very much interwoven into our economy. Uh, there's students here studying. I mean, as you said, there's there's lots of investment into Canadian uh, institutions, whether they're educational or what have you. H- how do you balance this? Is it too late to balance this? We have a rising power, second largest economy in the world, which is according to some people, already the largest economy in the world, that uh, we've had a, an ambassador there who used to give many speeches saying, you're either in China or you're roadkill. That is this rising power. We'd better be involved with it, economically at least. Where does it go when it becomes increasingly the case that that rising power, the country which we felt justifiably we had better be engaged in, turns out to be increasingly authoritarian, and as you've just suggested, possibly, possibly is intervening in Canadian affairs through manipulation of their their citizens here, or our citizens of Chinese descent. There's no easy answer to that one, Scott. I I, I was asked this a rather long time ago privately and, and gave my advice saying, you ha- you can't avoid dealing with this rising China, but we have to be very, very careful in how we do so. And that's, that was my advice then. That's my advice now. China has said, unlike its earlier parts of earlier earlier experience of China, and unlike other regimes elsewhere, they want to be part of the world. They want to be interactive. They want to be taken seriously as a responsible power. 
Xi Jinping wants to go to Davos and say, I'm, I'll, I'll lead the international order, a liberal international order, and stand for free trade. Well, all of that's good, but there's implications for China then. They then have to say, okay, if that's the nature of the world in which we do legitimately wish to participate, then our behavior and our norms have to follow suit. And that's very much in question. Are Canadians having to decide whether they should pick, especially with the, the Huawei CFO case, whether we should pick sides with America and Donald Trump, per se, or communist China? Or are we actually having that debate? Right now, we are certainly caught in the middle over, over Huawei. There's no... <laughs> why, why are we... So because we don't like the leader of the United States, is it worth siding with China on this one? Well, you know, this is... a. Uh... Canada has no choice but to be an American ally, whether a Trump ally or not, because the obvious reasons, culturally, economically, politically, socially, uh, our, our fate is intertwined as a smaller North American country with the United States. That doesn't mean you agree with them and all, but th- there's no question that given that choice, uh, it'll have to be, well, we have to side with our ally, our NATO ally, our NORAD ally, uh, our economic partner. Our, our partner in the NAFTA too. I mean, this is. Uh, but the, the trick for Canadian policy is always to be. You don't want to be caught having to make a choice like that. You want to b- promote what we have right. been promoting as middle power. Hmm. We need a multilateral uh, world based on rules of of law and practice. In order for us to maneuver in that world, uh, we need to have law-abiding. Uh, norm uh, adhering partners around the world. I think I've said this to you much earlier when we talked about uh, Meng Wanzhou and China's reaction. China's behavior toward us, I think, has really cost them reputationally. A lot of countries, were, a lot of people were asking what you were asking. Well, what do you do about this country? Uh, and now more and more people are saying, I think, and more and more states are saying, now we have a clearer picture of what kind of state Xi Jinping wishes to lead, and we are frightened about that. We are not uh, in concert with it. Is this Will this become a, a federal election issue for Canadians, especially if these protests continue in Hong Kong and we, st- and we see them on Canadian soil? I can't answer what uh, politicians in Canada will choose to make an election hmm. issue or not. Uh, as you know, there's certainly other issues in the news right now, which sometimes you and I talk about. Uh, that are likely to be more important. The way it shows up domestically is, in part, the punishment that China is meeting out economically. We are being treated badly as an economic partner with the canola on the prairies in particular, but elsewhere. Uh, these are We are being punished, and Canada is paying a cost for Meng Wanzhou, and the debate might turn out to be, well, why did you arrest her in the first place? The opposition says we will do. We would have done so much better, but there's no evidence of how they would have done much better. It, uh, that may be an election issue. Elliot Tepper has been with us, emeritus uh, professor, of political science, Carleton University. As always, Elliot, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, you know what dining and dashing is. I mean, I, I'm. I've never done it, but I've heard of it, I guess. You know, people, uh, I, I remember when we were kids, you know, kids saying that they had done that or had tried to or, or, or what have you. Although it would seem in today's world, this seems um, like 
technology would sort of curb this kind of activity because pretty much everywhere you go, there's cameras. So uh, if you're into a, any sort of establishment and you walk out, chances are they got a good picture of you. And I'm not sure whether the humiliating experience which could follow is uh, worth walking out on your bill, not to mention the people that work hard every day to, uh, to help you uh, ha- make sure you have a great experience while you're in that establishment. Uh, a great article in, on the uh, Global News website. You can see it at CHML's website. Uh, Erica Vela has done it, digital broadcast journalist uh, for Global News. We suffer too. Toronto restaurant owner warns of alleged serial dine and dasher. Serial dine and dasher. Tim Moore says he was bartending at Tequila Bookworm on Queen Street in Toronto when a man allegedly walked out on his $90 bill. But from there, the story kind of takes a bizarre twist. Is there such a thing as a serial dine and dasher? Uh, to find out more, let's bring in Tim Morse. He is a Toronto restaurant owner and manager. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, how's it going, man? Uh, good. So, Tim, tell us what happened. Run us through this story. So it's just like typical Tuesday afternoon. Um, my bar in particular is an industry bar. We just do like cheap craft beer during the day. We're located right in the heart of downtown. So it's not uncommon for industry people to, you know, come in and kind of let loose on a day off, is, which is usually early during the week. Tuesday, Wednesday is pretty typical. So this guy came in Tuesday. He immediately was like super friendly, super chatty. Uh, he'd actually gone out of his way to introduce himself, that his name was Adam. He worked at a Firkin pub downtown. And from that point, he just stayed chatty. He definitely had his fair share of drinks, but he was completely lucid and super conversational. Uh, at one point, he pulled my chef over and started talking to him. And at that point, he bummed a smoke from him. And uh, after, I think, his seventh or eighth beer, he just said, oh, can you pour me another one? I'm just going to go for a cigarette and uh, popped out and then half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour. And I was talking with one of my regulars and I was like, this guy isn't coming back. So remembering that he had uh, left, his, he told me his name and where he worked. I thought, oh, you know, I can just call, call it saying, you know, he left his wallet or his cell phone or something like that at the bar. And I just wanted to get it to him. And when I called the restaurant, they said, oh, by the way, no one by that name works here. Hmm. We've had the same kitchen staff for the last four or five years, and there's no one who fits that description or by that name. And that's when I knew I'd been conned. But, uh, <laughs> so, so how did the story progress from there? So what happened after was I had realized what had happened. I informed my bosses. They, they said, you know, that's, that sucks. That's really unfortunate. Not much we can do about it. I took a screenshot of his, uh, uh, we have a video camera that runs at the bars. We have picture and video of him sitting and drinking at the bar and everything like that. But uh, much later in uh, in the night, it was my friend's birthday party. We'd had barbecue. We'd had a bunch of drinks. And then uh, his fiance said, okay, we're going to go to a bar. We are at deep in Parkdale at this point. So about two, three kilometers uh, west of where I live and where my bar is. And I was standing at the bar. I was telling telling this story about this this. You know, this kind of jerk guy that conned me over. I look across the bar and I see him again. No way. Yeah. What did did you think when you're telling someone this story and then the guy's right there? 
I, I was bewildered. It was it was one of those weird days too, where you had a feeling something weird was going to happen. There was a weird feeling in the air, but seeing him at the bar, I just had that. Oh my god, hold that thought, and just immediately ran over to him, where he just like he immediately just kind of recognized who I was, kept his head down, and when I told him, "Hey, you know the ATM is right across over there. I don't care about a tip. I just want to get the money from for my bosses of which you stole." And then that's when he booted it. And then like, just like he hightailed it, but having been drinking all afternoon and I'd only had a couple of pints at that point, it took me about, I don't know, 40 seconds to catch up with him. And he was just totally gassed. And when I asked for so he took, so when you asked him to pay for the bill at the second bar, he just mm-hmm. bolted. He just took off. Yeah. And, and you chased him. Uh, wow. Uh, so, uh, as you said, he, he had quite a few drinks at your place. Um, uh, was he well, uh, uh, was he well lubricated by the time you saw him the second time? That's the crazy part. Not even. Really? Because I have, I'm just because of that kind of behavior, I'd imagine after he left my place, he probably hit maybe one or two others on the way. Yeah. And so he, he hadn't even gotten his pint at this, at this bar when I had, uh, I'd start chasing after him, and uh, so you eventually caught up to him. Now, are you were you not concerned about your safety at this point? I I was just so full of adrenaline, yeah. And I was just I just had that moment of I can't believe this guy not only screwed me over, but yeah. he's probably going to try and screw the bar. Well, I mean, he definitely did screw the bar yep. over because as I came back, his pint was sitting on the table, and the bartender looked at me and she just she just says. Why are you chasing my customers out of the bar? <laughs> really? I was going, oh, well, he, thought he wasn't actually going to be a customer. He was yeah. going to try and, and pinch you on that one, too. So but what happened when you caught this guy? He was totally gassed. He, uh, he was very frightened. Um, he's about twice my size, so I don't know why that's the case. I'm, I'm 5'10 and 140 pounds wet, but I was pretty angry. I was, I was definitely yelling at this point, just... You know, ask him why he would do this to a small business. How many other places has he hit? And he just he just started crying and just said, you know, I'm like, this is this is, you know, this is something I do and I can't help it. And I just I asked for his wallet. I want a piece of ID, something to give the cops. And it's completely empty, no cards, no ID, no nothing. Wow. And so I just went, you know, that's so pathetic, man. And I told him, I said. You know, I know I know addiction and everything as much as the next person, but the fact that you have to con and lie to all these people and steal from all these people, especially especially really trusting small businesses. I mean, that's the main reason why I was so angry and I had so much adrenaline was because this guy spent, you know, four, four and a half hours at my bar getting to know me, mm. really spending his time and talking and chatting with me and you know, we were opening up to each other about things. You know, we were having just like a, a really yeah. good conversation the way I would have with any of my customers. And he took advantage of that. And so I felt really cheated beyond just the money that he took from us. Once you eventually did catch up to him and had this chat with him and such, um, did you, and obviously you're in the business, you, you can probably recognize this. Did you real, did, 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 uh, did it look like he had or real, did, did you realize that he may have had mental health issues or addiction issues of, of some sort? Uh, or is he just a guy ripping you off? I, I, I mean, just purely based on the amount of alcohol consumed that day, I would say definitely it's gotta be some kind of addiction issue and that, yeah. 
when it when it came down to the the Facebook post that happened the next day, and I started seeing, you know, it went from like a couple of bars to fifteen to twenty to over thirty. So talk like, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So you you put this on social media. What kind of response did you get? Uh, it, at first, uh, it was like maybe like one or two comments of, "Oh man, that really sucks." I'm sorry to hear that. That's that that's complete BS. That's really unfortunate that someone would would do that to you. And then it was just this like firestorm of tagging of, Hey, so-and-so is that the guy that did it to your bar last week? Or was it this guy who did it here this week? And then it just started like going and going. And then people are posting his health card. Some people said, I have his credit card. I have his debit card, you know, and it makes sense as to why his wallet was empty because all these other places that have caught him have, have been holding on to certain pieces of ID for forever. But I, I didn't know that places had started um, had started a police report, and you know, 350 comments later, I was just like blown away to see that he'd done this. And this is not this is just his second city. Uh, apparently, he had a history of doing this in Mississauga as well. Uh, are you surprised that he was so chatty and did so much to draw attention to himself while he was in your bar? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean the. It was it was 100 uh, percent just to gain my trust, so yeah. I would ask for a piece of ID or sure. a, a credit card. Right. And you know, the one thing at the end of the day, I I really do hope this guy gets help because yeah. this kind of addiction is is really really tragic. Uh, unfortunately, though, I do believe he has to have the book thrown at him because the only way he will learn is to have something you know like yeah. arrested yeah. or charged. Yeah, he can't keep doing this. So, any and, idea how many establishments he's hit other than yours? Uh, from what I can tell on the Facebook book, over 30 in just downtown Toronto alone. Man. And these, these are places ranging from, like, the beaches and Neville Park all the way to, like, Roncesvalles and Parkdale all the way up to, like, Young and Eglinton. Like, he's going everywhere. Now, was there food involved with these purchases or just drink? Yep. He, he, he had a full meal. Right, had meal as well, eh? Wow. And what was his response? How, how did your encounter end with him when you finally did uh, uh, catch him and such? And, and he, he, he put on, did you, did you think he was, when he started crying and such, do you think he was putting that on? Or do you think there was honestly issues? How did this, how did your encounter end with him? I, I was just so flustered. I didn't know really what to do. I mean, in, in, in situations like that, they, I, based on the TV shows and cop shows I've watched, they always say, you know, crying is always a deterrent because most criminals don't want to deal with someone who's crying uncontrollably uh-huh. uh, or, or aggressors, I should say. Uh, and so, like, I saw that and I was just like, dude, like, pick yourself up. Like, yeah. just stop doing this. And he just kind of mumbled, like, I'm sorry. And I was like, don't be sorry. Just stop. Yeah. You know? Like, <laughs> Where do you think this is going? I mean, police must have now a reasonable yeah. amount on this guy, would they not? Yeah, I would say so. Considering they, his ID has been distributed all over the city. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, and they had to really modify that because they were, you know, posting his ID with his health card number. I was going, right. Yeah, it's illegal. Yeah, people don't need to see that part. But as long as people know his name, you know, kind of his basis and what his picture looks like, and he's that's that's the other thing that's so crazy about it is if it was someone like me, I'm like. 5'10", black hair, skinny hipster tattoo guy who lives on Queen West. Like, that's, yeah. you know, like the diamond dozen. This guy's, like, 
six foot one, giant red hair, a giant red handlebar mustache, and like super white skin. And hmm. like he sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. So it's one of those if someone sees him and he walks into a bar and if they've seen his picture on the news or they saw his picture on the Facebook group, like they will know immediately that's him. So have police commented on what they would do? Are they trying to find him or help out? I mean, obviously it's not a big, you know, deal, but still, I mean, if you're hitting this many establishments, you're causing a problem. And who knows where it could lead, I guess. I don't I, I don't really know as to what's happening with the police report because as much as, you know, this guy is uh, is definitely a thorn in the side, there's been a string of really heavy break-ins uh, that have been happening in the Bloordale area, right. specifically, uh, specifically concerning restaurants and bars. I think the cops are a little bit more worried about because yeah. there's like this this guy is more of a con guy where yes it's illegal but no one's actually being hurt. He's not hurting anybody. Yeah. yeah. Did yeah, you feel threatened at all or or anything by his presence? Oh God, no. Yeah. The guy was a pussycat. Like he was he was you know super nice, like very polite. Like I said, like he went out of his way to introduce himself with a fake name, but. So is dining and dashing a big problem? I mean, you think with the technology today and there's cameras everywhere, like this would be impossible. It, I, I mean... Unless, I, of course, you want, you know, some embarrassing, you know, pictures of yourself put up on social yeah. media somewhere until eventually your friends see them. Yeah. I mean, I in my 10 years working in the industry, I've never known dining and dashing ever to be an issue. I know of people getting way too drunk and walking out on bills. Sure. And usually if, if that gets to the point, the, the, the common move is the second you start seeing that a client is, you know, they've had too much to drink or something like that, you usually try and get them to settle up as quickly as possible. Right, get them yeah. home or get them in an Uber, notify their friends or their family and say, hey, your friend is drunk, like something like that. I mean, someone was dining and dashing a couple of weeks ago uh, from a bar in our neighborhood and... I mean, the entire bar walked out with him before he ended up inevitably smashing our window. <laughs> wow. Well, what about, so. do do customers notice this? Do other, you know, are other people aware that this is going on? Do people say, hey, that guy just walked out. I mean, are your customers, especially if they're regulars, are they aware of that? I mean, they, my, my regulars are incredibly loyal and amazing people. I love them all. And 100% they notice that. I mean, this guy just, he, he said the magic words, which for leaving a restaurant is simple, which is I'm going for a cigarette yeah. and brandishing the cigarette in their hand. Or, you know, these days like a jewel or a vape or something. Like sure. Now, is for dining and dashing, are there common denominators? Are there things that you, you know, as being in the profession so long, you think, well, you know, I'm going to watch that one. I mean, it seems like this one really took you. It surprised yeah. you completely. I mean, are there common denominators for people who look like they're going to do this? Common denominators usually are people who seem really, really uneasy when they get to the bar by themselves. Right. Someone who, you know, is fumbling with their hands a lot, doesn't really know what to order, comes into, like, because specifically our bar is, is craft beer. Uh, and Ontario craft beer at that was the only thing we serve. So if someone comes in and immediately is like, give me a bottle of Corona or give me a bottle of this and that, or did they start getting angry right. when they don't? when we don't have the specific product they're looking for. So when you're trying to have a conversation with them, you can see that they're getting like a little bit more heated. They're getting a little bit more fumbly. And usually uh, the second you put it down, you just say that'll be 
seven, eight dollars, whatever the price right. is, and then and then see what it is before you actually hand them. The so drink. does this and alter? It's all discretion based, right? Does this alter the way you or people in your industry do business, Tim? You know, I mean, you don't want to yeah. walk in and put something down in front of everybody and say, okay, you owe me like however much money now, especially if they're going to be a customer that's going to be hanging around for a while and maybe buying more, buying food, whatever. Yeah. So does this? You know, it's almost like uh, you know paying before you pump your gas. Yeah. No, one hundred percent, and that's and that's something that. You know, if if you're in like kind of like a stand-up bar or a club, like you know that you know what the drill is. It's if you go to the bar, you have to put a credit card down to start a tab, yeah. or you're going to be doing cash and carry because that's the kind of place it is, right? So if you're at like uh, the Thompson Hotel or uh, any of the clubs on King Street or anything like that, like everyone knows that like that's kind of the case. Whereas in a restaurant, because we do have, we do serve food, it's it's really not common practice to start asking people for cards. Or for ID, unless it's super, super busy and you really can't keep an eye on everyone. And even still, I, you know, me and my team, we we try not to do that either because we really want the customer to feel relaxed yeah. and feel comfortable. And so having an incident like this happen, like of course it's going to leave me a little bit jaded. I mean, I I worked yesterday exactly a week uh, a week from, and I worked last last Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and people were coming in, and you know, there were certain people that were sitting at the bar that were like. You know, nice, cute couples from Buffalo who were just here to come see a concert. Yeah. And I immediately, like, I wanted to ask them for a card. I was like, I know that these, like, yeah. Tonawandans are not going to, yeah. they're not they're, they're not going to try and run out. And if they if if they forgot something, I'd get the, ooh, golly, gosh, and they'd be coming back, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is just someone who is looking specifically to do this. And, I mean, I really hope this is the last time I deal with something like that. I mean, I'm knocking on wood right now as we speak but (laughs) so will you think twice before you let someone go for a smoke again i mean no yeah good for you yeah it's a hospitality business exactly and i cannot be a part of the hospitality industry if i'm not being hospitable good point tim morris has been with us toronto restaurant owner manager give us a give a plug for your place there tim tequila bookworm little craft beer bar just on queen west right at portland street Tim, thanks so much for the time and telling the story, sharing the experience. Uh, you know, keep a stiff upper lip, the chin up, all that stuff. Not everybody's like that. Good luck. Thanks, brother. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.